לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman in Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shaman. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chester, Salma Shakti Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City. We have an amazing Parsha. Parsha Chayin, sorry, it doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than this. Although, next At week. At least for this week. No, it does get better than this, but this is still pretty good. This is a great Parsha. I'll tell you why. It's got a great story. It's got a love story in it. It's got death. It's got love. It's got marriage. It's got everything in life, okay? And it's even got the next chapter for Abraham. Let's get right into it. We start out this Parsha with the death of Sarah. We're very, very sad about that. Abraham is also very sad about it, depending on how you read it. Okay, gentlemen, I have a problem. Why is he not with his wife? Where is he? What's going on here? Can you tell me why Abraham is far away? Go ahead, Jeremy. Because uh, famously, this this parasha is the uh, you know it's what we call smichut parshiot, the the two two stories appended one to another in the Torah. We have to read it midrashically as they're connected. So the last parasha ended with the story of the akedah of Isaac. The immediate thing that follows is the death of Sarah. So we midrashically read that when Sarah hears what Avraham has done, she passes from this world. <laughs> it kills her. And so at the end of the Akedah, Avraham returns to Beersheba. He can't go back to his wife after everything that has happened. They're alienated. They're estranged after, after this devastating this devastating thing. So He's in Beersheba, she's in Hebron, and they have to, he has to come here from his, uh, from his, I don't know, his, his, his country house or his, she sent, she sent his sorry carcass back to the country house and, uh, and told him, don't you darken my door. So, so I, I looked up on the Google Maps before, and it's, it's, it's about a 14 hour walk. I mean, and that's today, you know, it's it's a, it's at least a day's journey, maybe two days' journey. He's he's far away. There's no getting around this, and and I, it leads me also to believe that that there there's something estranged in this relationship. That um, you know, and even the 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 terms vayavo Avraham lispod lesarav kota Abraham comes to uh, lispod, which which is translated as to mourn her. But we use the word lispod is to to you know to give a hesped to give a eulogy to eulogize or to and belief kota and the and the commentators some of the commentators kind of pounce on this and they say you know normally people cry before they they do the the, the public eulogizing and so I'm led to believe that that you know he does it in the reverse because whatever whatever he's mourning he's mourning in public he's mourning on for, to show everyone the loss. He's maybe crying in private, but it's a public mourning. And and this puts us into the next, you know, scene because 
he's got to find a grain fur. Barry, you want to talk about this? You have to jump in here for for two reasons. First of all, I think that a lot of times we confuse what we do with what people have always done. Um, And, you know, we know a lot of things. I don't know that we know all that much about how people mourn in the ancient world. But Nahum Sarn in his commentary on Breshit has a fascinating comment on this word by Yavo, and he says the JPS new translation is proceeded, and he notes that the Hebrew verb to come may have the sense of preparation for action when used in conjunction with another verb, so that we don't have to understand it spatially, that he's coming from one place to another, but he's getting ready to mourn. He's getting ready to mourn. And well, that would be interesting. Mourn, yeah. He has to bury her. Which is you know, well- that would be interesting. Um, also, you know, if we can make a little bit of a psychological, a little psychological drush on it, um, you know, sometimes uh, the morning is just spontaneous and it comes out of, out of the heart with no trigger. And sometimes actually putting yourself in the uh, morning rituals awakens the feelings. Yes. But, okay, so so if we want to ask, what do you think his state of mind is here? Um, and I will ask you both to weigh in on this, uh, because the next, the very next scene is is uh, I think a rather sophisticated negotiation between him and and the local Don, the local. I mean, how would you characterize Efron the Hittite, landowner, developer? Yeah, I think a local thug. He's a local thug, right? <laughs> so I think that Abraham is confused or perplexed. And I think we have to imagine, I think correctly, that Abraham is uh, semi-nomadic. He's not settled. But now when someone dies, he has to decide what, what to do. And he realizes, you know, he's taken this long journey. He's come with um, his family to Canaan from his homeland, and um, now he actually needs a piece of the land. He can't be traveling. He needs an anchor in the city, in, I, a, in this piece of land. I, I disagree with I think he's very shrewd here. I think he's clear-headed. He's not, and this is why I also am led to believe that, that you know, he's very sad that she dies, but but he's not completely overwhelmed broken, distraught, he's, you know, and of course, at the end of the Parsha, we'll see that he picks up and gets on with his life too, which we'll talk about. But, but, you know, this is a guy, yeah, this, this event has happened. He knows he has to take care of it. He didn't prearrange a funeral. He didn't go to, you know, what's your funeral? Plaza Chapels. He didn't go there. He didn't buy a plot. You know, it's irresponsible. You know, today we would say that, but he has, he does, and he does it with a lot of clarity, with a lot of, um, I mean, it's a shrewd ne- negotiation with a thug. So, but he, he possibly overpays. Comes closer to the mic. He possibly overpays. Possibly. Um, I don't know. If you think he's shrewd, then I think that we have to ask ourselves what we think the point of the story is. And the point of the story is the sale of the land. And okay. This is going to be the first property that is Israelite or Hebrew property in the promised land. Right. And it's significant that it's Hebron, which yeah. we know from later in the Bible is going to be the, the town of David. Okay. Um, but, 
Yeah, Jeremy. No, no, I, I, uh, I think that it's uh, what speaks to me about this passage is is neither particularly the shrewdness nor nor Ephron's wiliness. Ephron does seem to swindle him uh, out of a hell of a great deal, but you know, there's like there's a, a sort of a real poetic echo of human experience. What do you what land do you really own in this world? Only the Arba Amot of your grave, right? You you buy something and this is this is where your bones, you you are going to be part of the land. And I, I find this really profound. There's like beautiful, like deep agada in the mystical tradition about this being the, the gateway um, to in the Zohar it says Virats when 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 Abraham goes to, uh, last week. And the angels there, it says uh, that, that Abraham rats el habakar, he ran to the, to the cattle, but it plays with the words and says rats el kever, that he always wanted, the letters bet kuf resh and kuf bet resh, that he always wanted, he knew that this was the gateway to the Garden of Eden and, and Adam and Chava were buried there. He, he always wanted to be in that space between um, earth and, and paradise. And so, like that—that that kind of drive to be in the grave—not that you want to die, but that you want to have the nexus point of living and eternity. I think this story is suffused, at least as Jews have read it. Maybe not in the Tanakh itself, but as Jews have read it, to own your grave is to own your life, is to own your place as you pass from the world into eternity. I want to add one other point. So when Abraham dies, it says by a safe alamab. He is gathered to his people, but which is a bitui. It's an expression that he's now joining all the ancestors that have previously died. But here it also has an important geographical point because he is going to be buried next to Sarah in the cave, and she is his person. And I think that this gives perhaps a, a nicer coda to their relationship than some of the things we've said previously. I, I disagree with both of you. I think I think that that he he's ambivalent about it. He didn't prepare beforehand. He has to come from a distance. The fact that he has to do this at this point under duress is significant. The fact that he does it so well with clarity and without ambiguity as to who and how he owns the land, I think is the real uh, kicker of the story. That he and he overpays for it in order that there would be no dispute whatsoever about his ownership because they're willing to offer him, they're willing to say, "Oh, Jew, take, 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 take a grave here, be me, be my guest," you know, and and he does not want to have that doubt over him. He has already eyed the cave of Machpelah. He he knows it because he lived in Elone Moreh and Hebron before. He scoped out the land. He knows exactly what he wants. He gets exactly what he wants. He's very shrewd. I, I just I would give him a you know take off a star for for not doing it ahead of time and all our listeners and viewers you should take care of this ahead of time that's the point. <laughs> all right, let's move on. Otherwise, otherwise the cemetery people are going to upsell you. There, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so we, we we she's buried and it's it's over and then we get this lovely pasuk the Avraham zakain ba bayamim Abraham is old he is. Baba Yamim, how would you translate that? Advanced in years. And God has blessed everything. God has blessed Abraham with everything, except for the fact that his wife just died. Well, 
Of course, course. that was the blessing. <laughs> you think that was that, the But I think we, we have to, last year, I think we spoke about this, but what I find curious this year is that now, after the death of Sarah, he's considered old. Yeah. But he was old, too old to have Isaac, but now he's really old. And he's going to be old again when he dies. Okay. And it makes one think that age here, or seniority, whatever we want to call it, is really a state of mind. It's not something that attaches to the years. And it's said here because Abraham now knows that he has the sole powers of preparation for Isaac's future. Yeah. No one else to provide for Isaac. Okay. And that's the task that he's going to take up. All right. So he, he has his trusted servant. Whether whether the servant is named Eliezer or not, it's a debate. You know, we, we've been calling him Eliezer, but here he's unnamed. The unnamed servant, he uh, has the servant in an oath. And the oath is, Lo tikach isha livni mibnot ani. Don't take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, Asher anochi yoshev bikirbo, among whom I am dwelling, ki el artsi, go to my land, el moladati, my birthplace, telech, go there, velakachti isha livni liyitzchak, and get a wife for my son Isaac. And so he says, hishamer lecha, you know, swear by me, penta shivet b'ni shama, do not put my, send my son back there. Okay, so. so there seems to be an intimation here that Abraham's not going to live to see Isaac married. Interesting. Right, because otherwise, why would he have to tell the servant not to take a Canaanite woman for my wife, for his wife? That's interesting. That's an interesting, let me, let me, let me ponder that. But and as I ponder that, get Jeremy weigh in on this. Okay, so Why doesn't he want a girl from Canaan, a Canaanite girl? Well, clearly we have, we will see later in the story of Isaac and Rebecca, they don't like the Canaanite girls. Asaph marries them and they're just nothing but trouble. And the Bible obviously has a generally speaking negative attitude towards the local people in the land. There's like a lifelong rivalry and, and Joshua is going to be commanded to kill every last one of them. And certainly one of the ugliest uh, pieces in, in the Bible. Um, but, you know, Abraham is clearly sufficiently old that there's no, he, he's not up to the journey, right? There's no chance that Abraham is going to make the journey himself. If, if Abraham is 99 when Isaac is born, and if Isaac is, you know, working out some of the Midrashic math, 100, these 37, so so Abraham's about 136, 100, you know, Sarah, Sarah's 127. 40 when he was married, Isaac, so Abraham's 140. Well, Sarah's 127. Abraham was nine years older than she is. 10, 137. So he's 137. He's going to live to 175. He has another, he has another, you know, 40 odd years in him, but he's not going to, he's not going to make this journey himself for sure. Uh, The thing that strikes out to me is that Isaac is incapable of making, I mean, what? How come Isaac is incapable of making the journey himself? And Abraham says, you know, don't return my child there. Clearly, Abraham thinks that whatever Isaac will be exposed to, you know, he's he doesn't. I think that he thinks we've been on a covenantal journey. I know my son. I know what he can or can't do. Perhaps we say in the in the trauma in the wake of the trauma of the Akedah, he has been unfit or he's unseated for his ability to do this. But the point is that Isaac is. I think that this is an indication of some weakness on his part. You can't take him back there if he's going back there. 
he's not going to remain, you know, yeah, he's not going to remain in his party. Most of us disagree with you. Okay. I have to disagree with you. Go ahead, closer. For this reason. And that is that the greatness of Isaac is that he never leaves Eretz Yisrael. Both his father and his son will leave Eretz Yisrael, and their experiences outside the land are not necessarily good. However we characterize Isaac, I think we have to take into account that it was his destiny to forever be within the, the land of Israel. That's exactly what I'm saying is, that's exactly what I'm saying is indicating a sense of weakness, which is to say that, that Abraham, that Jacob, that Joseph in his way, that Moshe in his way, David in his way, they're all going to experience exile and overcome those things. But certainly back in the patriarchal generation, Abraham and Jacob, they have to leave Eretz Yisrael. They have to go on, you know, what Joseph Campbell calls, right, the hero's journey. The hero's journey marks them as a hero, that they have to overcome obstacles and return. You, you know, uh, what's his name? Ulysses uh, has to come back, Odysseus has to come back from from uh, the, the, um, the exile, the battle. But Isaac can't do that. But you know who does? Rebecca does that. Rebecca is the character just like Abraham and just like Jacob, who comes from Mesopotamia, has in some heroic measure to demonstrate her fitness with an act of great generosity, to leave behind the bad society and journey towards a good society. I basically think the three real ancestral superstars are Abraham, Rebecca, and Jacob. Okay. I, so I'm, I've been disagreeing with you. I, I don't think that Abraham is frail because we have plenty of evidence later on in the Parsha that he is quite virile and quite capable of, of, of living a good full life. I, I, I want to put this out to you. Not that he is incapable of going back. He doesn't want to go back. And the reason why he doesn't want to go back is it's, he made a, a rupture of, between himself and that world. He does not want to go back to that world. And I get the feeling he also doesn't want to see those people again. You know, his brother is way ahead of him in the nation-building uh, program. We, we have learned at the end of last week's Parsha that, that his brother is already well on to building up his own tribal structure. There are 12, you know, kids in, uh, from concubines and, and wives and whatever. Abraham's got nothing. Abraham's got nothing to show for it. And Abraham has the land. And Abraham has God. Of course, God, we have to talk about God because God is not really in the picture here. But Abraham is zealous about staying in the land. He's zealous about maintaining his distance from, from his family. And and there's some there's a missing story here. Somebody said something to someone, and they don't talk anymore. <laughs> In response to what you said, Jeremy, about the uh, archetypes of the hero's return, is that the experiences that Abraham come close? We're we're not hearing you. The experiences that Abraham and Jacob have outside of the land are not the highlights of their lives, and the fact we can argue they're the low ones. Say, I'm saying it again because we can't hear you. They, they there are, there are low lights. In other words, when not, Abraham goes to Egypt and passes his wife off as his sister, we don't say, wow, Abraham, and when Jacob goes to first to Padan Aram, to his uncle, and then to Egypt, we also have ambivalence about what he does. 
And yeah, but I, I think that's I think that's part of the story. I think that that's that's part of its its. I, I understand that point, and I accept that point. But I also think part of the story is that Isaac doesn't do it not as because he is weak, but it is part of the strength, whatever strength he does have. Well, I think being bound to the land and and the whole notion of travel. He's bound by his father, not bound to the land. He's bound by his father, and he's and he's the boundaries are really the land. He's the only one, as Jeremy said. He's you know doesn't traverse any boundaries. He only he only traverses you know regions within within the land itself, and and uh, ends up as we see in in. Uh, you know, in the Hagar territory, in the Ishmaelite territory. Let's, let's just wait, can I say one thing, one thing real quick about it. He doesn't want to see these people. I, I think it's interesting because, of course, as you said correctly, at the very end of Genesis 22, we get we get the gen- genealogy of his brother Nahor. And the, this passage here stresses, you know, brings home that they're going to ear Nahor. I just was you know, studying with, with my Bar girl this week. And she wrote it to Bartow and she said she goes to the city called Nahor. I said, no, no, it's not, it's, it's not the city called Nahor, it's the person. They went to the city of the person named such and such. And uh, so I think that's a powerful element here that Abraham has perhaps got some jealousy or ambivalence. But the Akedah story ends off with the generations of Nahor. And then Abraham, through the, through the person of Rebecca, uh, remarries together. So Rebecca is his is his uh, um, grand niece, and, and so therefore Isaac's first cousin once removed. Uh, we, I think, there's a kind of reconciliation passage that goes in this remarriage into the family of of Abraham's brother Nahor. I'll tell you, I, I have a little bias here, and, and the reason why I have a bias is the word misham, lakachta isha livni misham, from there, and and the word sham is used sometimes in a disparaging way to refer to Egypt. You know, when when, when it, it makes reference to Egypt, it's always misham, misham. Of course, you know, we may be, I may be reading too much into it, but I, I, I get the feeling that it's like, you know, the way that, that, that our European immigrants came, you know, especially the, the survivors, right? I mean, it, they, it, literally for them it was also misham. They were coming from there, and they they were in no rush to go back there. Men, the, the ones who ended up here, of course, um, and and for many of them, they never they never wanted to set foot on the soil of their ancestral land again. And so it makes me think, you know, what what transpired there in order for him to not want to go back, to never want to see. We know that. He buried his father Terach, and that the 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 chronology works out that he must have had to go back, right? It happened before the Akeda, but still, still, the text doesn't say this, and it leads us to believe. Yeah, there there's a tension in this parsha between family and the land. Yeah, and it has to be worked out. So Abraham doesn't want Isaac to marry a local. So he has to bring a family member here, uh, here being Canaan on one hand. On the other hand, Isaac has to stay in Canaan because, you know, he's the Sabra. And there is no Yuridah yet. Yuridah. So let's talk about the well, the scene at the well. And and uh, the servant, who we call Eliezer, has made this uh, kind of ordeal, this test, right? He says... Um, he, he, he says, uh, I'm with the text here. Um, 
Adonai. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's verse 12. Adonai God of my Lord, of, of my, my father, my, of, of my master Abraham. Make it happen for me. You know, give him graciousness. I am going to be at the well or at the fountain. And the, the, and the girls are coming out to draw water. And to the young maiden to whom I will say, lower your uh, jar for me and I will drink. And, I, and, and says to me, drink and I will also provide water for your camels that's the woman that you are designating for your servant isaac and that's how i'll know that you did uh, a kindness with your with your with my master okay so i love, I love, it. I love the way you translated by the way adunai elohei adunia abraham hakrena you 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 dress that is make it happen for me, which is exactly right. <laughs> what is it? Like, make it happen. This is great. This is this is exactly right. And it, it is a, it is a test. It is audacious, and it is like the, just the tone of that is is so outrageous. Make it happen, big guy. I'm counting make on you. Happen. Make it happen. You know what? But but it's it's um what's so lovely about it, and and here you know I love this. It's what makes the Torah great. It's such great storytelling. It's such great, you know, it's just a rich language. And, and what he's saying is, what's the, what's the measure here? I just want to see some kindness. I just, I don't care how brilliant she is. I don't care how beautiful she is. I don't care about anything else. Just, I want her to be kind. Well, because that's what you can't see right away. Because Rebecca, as we know, is described as being beautiful. Right. And you see that right away. Right. Most of the time when we recognize someone as being beautiful, we're looking at them. Yeah. And we know right away what their inner beauty is. We don't know until they do something. Yeah, I was thinking of a different verse. It's a similar, similar vein. When Shmuel goes to pick out David, Shmuel just picks out the, the taller, handsomer brothers. And God says, Adam God, People see with their eyes, but God sees all the way through to the heart. Okay, so so she 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 comes out. He's 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 at the well in the very next verse, practically, and uh, he makes all the camels sit down. And and in fact, you know, he just runs up to her and says, "Give me a sip from the from from your from your jar." And and it's a very intimate scene. And it's you know, reading it closely, uh, there's there's a lot to glean out of it. But um, he then kind of smacks, slaps on two, you know, golden bands well, on well, it. Actually, just pause on that real quick. First of all, I'm giving, I'm giving, uh, I, I really like what, what this week's Bad Mitzvah girl, Zion Bennett, mazel tov to you and your family, to uh, Roger and Vanessa. Uh, what she did with this, because she she's giving it to our Torah about uh, ulterior motives and, and Levon's ulterior motive. She, she speculates, Rebecca sees a guy 10 camels and she says to him she says to herself which person in the market should i be helping out here <laughs> <laughs> this guy this guy's got 10 camels that guy over there's got two skinny goats i'm helping out this guy with the camels <laughs> a, a, a little a little cynicism no, but I just want to say that what, what, what the guy does what what Abraham does by the way he takes out he doesn't slap the, the bracelets on her just yet 
he takes the bracelets and says, Bat Mi'at. Yeah. Who, who's, daughter. Whose daughter are you? So who's he's waiting. He, he holds out the gold and he wants to know about the familial connection and then he slaps it on. Right, because he has to actually find a descendant of Terah. Yeah. Right, he can't. But the other thing that is interesting about her picking the guy with the 10 camels is that I think, and this becomes clear at the end of the story, that Rebecca is really eager to get out of her ancestral land too. And that really, I think, is part of her greatness, is that, in a sense, the servant is saying to her, lach, and just as God said to Abraham. Well, that, that lines up with Jeremy and, and, and like it's Abraham, Rebecca, and Jacob. You know? Yeah, and she's ready. She's ready, and 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 truthfully, when she when they ask her and they say they say to her, "Are you willing to go?" and she says, "Elech," you know, there is a certain defined... yeah, which we really should translate, "I'm gone." I'm gone. You know, she's already taken the step out. Right. Well, she so she she wants to dissociate herself from from her ancestral land as well, and that makes her um, quite sympathetic to 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 Abraham. It also makes her ideal an ideal wife for for isaac because in a way she fulfills uh, a lot in her character that isaac is missing in his parents especially his mother's mother's dead and why don't we we're running out of time we got to run to the last that precious verse at the end of the story where it says that she he marries her okay mm-hmm. and it says um, he brought her into his mother's tent. He takes Rivka, but she becomes his wife. And he loves her. And he is comforted after his mother. And it doesn't get much more, you know, passionate and, and emotional than that. It's. It's a very emotional moment, you know, the marriage, and and we we understand what what the text is saying here that in some way, the wife becomes the comfort for the 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 tremendous trauma and loss that he has in his life. He's he's he doesn't have a father really. That relationship is broken. His mother is dead. His brother is away. He's got nobody really, and now he has a woman who's beautiful, who's kind. Who's really smart, um, and uh, he loves her. Do you blame him? <laughs> no, but Doctor Doctor Freud gets a stab at this part too, though. Uh, yeah. True. Okay. Yeah, but but I I think that that's quite uh, I think that's quite on target. I think there's a there's a great beauty in the restoration to love. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the second. This is the first uh, time it speaks of any sort of marital love. The first use of the word love. I think is Kachnat Vinchat Yichitrasha Havta Yitzchak. Take your son, you're only one, the one you love, Isaac. Um, and go sacrifice him on the mountain. This is this is the domestic love, not the love that causes violence, that causes death. This is the domestic love that builds a happy home, and it's just uh, charming. And you know, there's a book. Mayor Shalev has a book of firsts, and the, you're right. I think the first love is the parental love. But this so is the way you describe the story, Ellie. It reminds us of the verse near the end of chapter two, where Eve is created from the the rib, as we conventionally say, of Adam. And it says, because of this, a man leaves his parents' home 
and cleaves to his wife. And um, in the story of Isaac and Rebecca, it sort of reverses that because she comes into his mother's home. Yes, hmm. beautiful, yeah. That is beautiful. That is really beautiful because that, that, that Breshit, with, uh, it's all Breshit, obviously, but the Adam Vechava, and I, I think uh, Elliot is the only, only one of us with the Zichut of having a married child, but uh, I think we know from our own lives that, and from the communities that we see, Child's children abandon their parents. They grow up, they live their own lives. Uf goes out. We parents cry when our kids go fly the coop. Um, but here, it's exactly as you said, Barry. It's This marriage is not created by the child flying the parental coop, but by the, the new person coming into the, to, into the nest. Okay, we've got to take at least one minute and talk about the coda to this Parsha, which is the coda to the Abraham story, and that is Abraham. He's got a lot going on here, okay? <laughs> he, he goes at it again. He gets another wife, 140 years old, and he has a woman <clears throat> named Keturah with whom he fathers six children. What up with that? <laughs> so, you know, it's a curious story. And I think the reason why it's curious is because when you ask kids how many children Abraham had, they always say two. And then when you tell them he actually had eight, they don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. And this is what they're talking about, or what we're talking about. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that Abraham, for all of his greatness, is also going to father some of the locals that are going to provide so much resistance to his Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish descendants in the course of the Bible and later Jewish history. Most striking, of course, is Midian, which will yeah. feature in the book of... Uh, but Moses marries Archie. a Midianite, and so, and so what happens is it's so fascinating that, that the, the, Le, Le, the Levitical descendants of Moses are, are descended on both sides from Abraham through Moses and through the, the Tzipporah. You know, they're, they're, they have two, two direct lines to Abraham, which, which kind uh -huh. of makes them oh, interesting. that's cool. I didn't that think cool. about that. Yeah. Yeah. About that. You know, all right. There's, one, there's one, one thing that's, first of all, it's beautiful that after everything between them, Abraham, I mean, uh, Yitzchak and Yishmael come together for the burial. I mean, that's this great moment of reconciliation. But there's a, a, a funny line here, verse 5. Abraham gave everything that he had. But to the, to the children of the concubines, he gave he gave gifts. Okay, so it doesn't mean that he literally gave everything to Isaac because he did give some things to the to the uh, to the Beneha Pilakshim. But also, uh, it, it it I think is a story about what's possession and what's dispossession. Because the story of the banishment of Yishmael back last week was Sarah says no. Isaac has to inherit. Abraham says, you're right. Isaac has to inherit. we got to get rid of this guy. I'm not giving him zero, but I'm not giving him a real inheritance. We're replicating that story here when he says, okay, 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 you guys, I'm going to get, send you off with some clothes, maybe some some nice jewelry, but you have to leave. The real yeah, read the, it's by Yishalchem. And he sends them. And so so we don't pay a lot of attention to this, but but he is, in a way, doing what he did to Ishmael, to these six children, again. And he's kind of dis detaching himself from that 
basically to say, look, the land is going to go to, and the covenant goes to Isaac. You guys go off to to the land of Kedem, to the Arabian Peninsula, basically, and have it there, and and that'll be that. Right, but what what the text is really saying when they gave Isaac everything, it means he gave Isaac his inheritance. Inheritance. That is what makes him Abraham. The gift that he gives to the other children is because they're separate from him. They're not part of his family in the no. way that Isaac is going to be. Yeah. I just want to, there's one curious detail. If I remember correctly, there are only two people in the Bible who live to be 137. One is Ishmael and the other is Levi. And it made me wonder that if the firstborn Ishmael has a priestly aura about him that is recognized in the years of Levi. Do you want to hear something, something else that's cool? So Abraham is 140 years old when he marries Keturah, according to this chronology. Who lives for 140 years after the the first catastrophic catastrophic? Job. Job. So so I I'm, I'm making the the idea the linkage here that that Job and Abraham are 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 connected in more ways than we think. Abraham has lived 140 years and jo, you know with and a first life and now has a second life. Job has had ca- ca- catastrophe in his first life and now lives a full life of 140 years after that. And is rebuilt, and so Keturah may be, in fact, a way to compensate Abraham for all the difficult problems that he's had. He has companionship, at the very, very least. He has somebody in his life, and and another family. He's not alone, and and I think that that there's a message there. He chooses life. He lives a full life. He's a great guy. We love well, another him. another message there is that. Then you have to read the six additional children as compensation for the children that Abraham lost, which would be both Isaac and Ishmael. Indeed. And we often don't think about Ishmael as being one of the lost children. But but then he loses all six too. But that's the end of his life. They don't come back for the burial, by the way, the six that he lost. You know, it's just Isaac and Ishmael. Wow, we're left with so many questions and so many puzzles, but, but it's... You know, we're going to say goodbye to Abraham. We miss him already. <laughs> but it's been wonderful to, to think about him over these last couple of weeks, especially this Shabbos. And we want to wish everyone watching, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And from all of us, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Enjoy.